0: The, uh, the four words, uh, categories, as it were, that your pastoral team sent to me that they would like me to focus on are these four words, uh, grace on display, goodness on display, greatness on display, and glory on display, grace, goodness, greatness, glory. I mean, stunning things uh, to look at. And for most of these, what I'm doing is taking a look at, uh, at particular attributes of God that really are all of those together. Any one of these is all of those together, but that have particular force with, with one of those concepts of who God is. Uh, tonight, looking at His grace. In the morning, looking at His goodness. In the evening, looking at His greatness. And then in, in the Sunday morning session, at His glory. So I just pray, goodness, that this would be a time when we not only learn things, because I I I think we will, because this is God's Word, and and I'm trusting the Spirit will be at work to open our eyes to behold truths about Him that He has revealed, and, and that we can take it and know better than we ever have before. But not only that, but that those truths would be, as it were, fuel for the fire of our hearts, affection for God, our devotion to Him, our longing to serve Him, our love and adoration of Him—so, so indeed, the the affections really are the main target here. Through the mind, it always works this way. You never have vibrant affections without very careful thoughts uh, about truth. But those thoughts of truth can never reside just in our heads. They are to land in our hearts. Where they, they become deep convictions and passions and loves of our lives, uh, things we value above everything else. So I'm just praying the Lord will do that. That's something only God can do. <clears throat> is, is, uh, I mean, there, there's a certain sense in which we can have control over what gets into our heads. But what affects our hearts? This is, this is the work of God. Of course, the head part is too, but uh, I don't mean to minimize that, but, but you know, there, there's a, a complete sense in which God must work in our hearts. So I pray that would happen over our time this weekend. Let's just pause for a moment and pray together as we begin. Father, we do commit these sessions to you as we worship together and sing our, our, our songs of praise and, and uh, give to you, Lord, our worship and express the, the love of our, our, our hearts to you. But then, Lord, as we turn our attention to hear from you and hear from your word, we pray that your spirit would be at work in mighty ways in our lives. Lord, please work within us to uh, remove from our minds any thoughts that are not true of you that we may harbor uh, as we see your word and the revelation of what you've told us in your word. And may we adopt a view of you as you have expressed yourself to us. So, Lord, do this work in us, we pray. For your glory and for the the good and the the uplifting and the well-being of your people, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. (coughs) Well, tonight we're focusing upon grace, grace on display, beholding the God of holiness and then grace from Isaiah 6. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be there in just a moment together. But first of all, a, a few words of introduction as we think about, uh, as we think about the grace of God, uh, th- thinking together about what it means that God has been gracious to us and is gracious to us. We live in a culture, a contemporary Christian culture, that is marked by a rush to imminence. Imminence meaning the nearness of God, the, the tenderness of God, the forgiveness of God, the kindness of God. When thinking about God, we, in much of our Christian culture, we almost always default to talking about God's love and His grace and mercy, His kindness and compassion, His goodness. But we do so often by bypassing altogether God's glorious and eternal transcendence. Transcendence referring to God's otherness, His His independence from us, his existence apart from all that is created, the fullness of his life as God independent of this world. We rush to imminence and we bypass transcendence. And this has resulted really in two major problems as we think about the conception of God that is prevalent among us in our Christian subculture. First of all, we don't really know that other aspect of God that is huge. I, I just cannot even begin to put into words what a tremendous lack this is. That we, we, we typically don't understand the, the greatness, the independence, the self-existence, the eternity, the self-sufficiency of God. He, he, the fullness of who He is as God without this world and He is gloriously full and rich. And we don't see that side of Him because of our rush to imminence. So that's one problem, is that we don't see the fullness of the greatness of who this God is. But here's the second problem, that even even the area that we have rushed to embrace, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, we don't understand it rightly Because we have inflated views of self and diminished views of God, we may sing amazing grace, but we don't mean it. We actually, in our heart of hearts, think grace is entitled. Grace is deserved, which of course is a contradiction in terms, right? What does grace mean? Unmerited, unearned favor, but we think of course God loves me. I mean, aren't I so lovable? Aren't I so wonderful? <clears throat> we're, we're, we live in a culture that is driven by values of self-esteem and entitlement. And that leads us to think much of ourselves and have very low views of God. I don't know if you've learned this yet, but there is an inverse proportionality in terms of view of God and view of self. If we have a high view of self, we will inevitably have a low view of God. And, are you ready for this one? If we have a high view of God, we will inevitably have a low view of self. But here's the irony, my friends. It's an irony like the one that Jesus said when he said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Huh? Isn't that ironic? You actually find your life by losing it. Well, here's another irony like that. You have a high view of God and a low view of self, and through that you enter into true self-fulfillment, true joy and happiness, because your happiness comes not from trying to engender something out of yourself that isn't there, but tapping into infinite fullness that is in God graciously given to little you and me. Isn't it amazing? So my friends, we we really do need very much in the culture we live in to avoid the rush to imminence and focus upon the transcendence of God in order to understand, in part, the imminence of God rightly. You know, in many ways, I'm just echoing what A.W. Tozer said back in 1962 in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, A.W. Tozer was a Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor in Toronto, Ontario, and in Chicago, Illinois. And he had a great burden on his heart that the view of God entertained among evangelicals of his day was, as he put it, so low so beneath the dignity of God as to constitute idolatry. Those are his words in the preface to the knowledge of the holy. And so Tozer wrote this book in order to try, try to be a tool to correct a, a very low and demeaning understanding of God that had become prevalent in the Christian church of his day. And my sense is we've not gotten better except in pockets. So there are pockets with... with, with tremendous increase in a correct understanding of God. You think of movements like Sovereign Grace, or Desiring God, or the ministries of John MacArthur, or R.C. Sproul, or Alistair Begg, and many other names we, we could say. These are places where high views of God have once again been restored and people have benefited much. But so much of the landscape of evangelicalism in our day is no better today than it was in 1962 when Tozer wrote his book. You may remember, some of you have probably heard his opening sentence, chapter 1, sentence 1, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Isn't that an amazing statement? (coughs) A great opening statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if, you, if you're thinking about that statement, you, you would naturally ask the question, well, why is that? Why is that the most important thing? And Tozer gives his answer on that very same opening page of chapter 1. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Now here's my paraphrase of Tozer's statement. I call it Tozer's principle. I learned this from him when I read this book when I was a freshman in college, and it absolutely transformed my life. I am in many respects doing what I'm doing today, Uh, speaking what I'm speaking to you right now because of the impact of that book on my life as a freshman in college. And uh, here, so I, I think of this as Tozer's principle. Here's my restatement of this principle. It is worth gold, my friends. Here it is. God has so made us that, <clears throat> that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like whatever it is we esteem most highly. God has so made us that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like Whatever it is we esteem most highly. Whatever it is we adore. What, whatever it is we worship. Whatever it is we love and cherish and treasure and prize. Look at it. That's what you're wanting to become like. I'll tell you, I, one of the most uh, obvious or clearest examples of this took place in the years that we lived in Chicago or in the Chicago land area. It was the early 90s when Michael Jordan had returned to the Chicago Bulls basketball team. And the Bulls were all of a sudden winning championships again, you know. And it was, those were great days in Chicago. But it wasn't just Chicagoans that, that loved Michael Jordan. The whole country loved Michael Jordan. Uh, there was this love affair with Michael Jordan. And evidently, Madison Avenue knew Tozer's Principle that we instinctively, naturally long to be like what we love, what we adore. Well we adored Michael Jordan and so we want to be like him. Well here's the problem, we can't jump like Mike, right? We, we can't, uh, we, we can't shoot like Mike, but goodness, we, we can drink Gatorade like Mike, we can wear, wear Nike tennis shoes like Mike, and it works because we wanna be like Mike. There was an advertisement that ran during those, those uh, championship seasons with that, with that phrase, you wanna be like Mike. Well, drink Gatorade, you know? So there it is. Well, th- this is the way God made us, my friends. Why do you suppose he made us with a craving inside to be like what we adore? Huh, it's not hard to figure this one out, is it? He intends to be the one we adore, and as we adore Him, we long to be more and more and more like Him. So we have such a need to know God rightly, to see Him in the greatness of His transcendent majesty and the, the, the uh, astonishing, amazing display of His imminent mercy and grace and love and kindness to us. One other testimony uh, along these lines comes from David Wells. That's also in your notes. A statement by him in a book that's now 20 years old. I can't believe, I still remember reading that book. It seems like it was yesterday uh, when it came out. 20 years have passed since he wrote this. Uh, God in the Wasteland. It's a very good book, by the way. He has a new one out that just came out a few months ago called uh, God in the Wasteland. Whirlwind, that is also just really a very, very fine book. But in this book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells writes, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that He is ethereal, but rather that He has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Well, my friends, shall it not be so here? May, may we feel the weightiness of God and understand how incredible it is that the God of transcendent perfection and glory has deemed it good and right to come to the likes of you and me. How amazing is His grace indeed. Well, Isaiah 40 is a beautiful display of this as we see a man who encounters the holiness, the greatness, the glory, uh, the majesty of God, and in so doing understands himself in whole new ways, understands his depravity, his his sinfulness, his unworthiness before God, and then experiences God's amazing grace that God, God brings to him. So let's read, if you would like to follow along in your Bibles, Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 8 to remind ourselves of this account, Uh, and uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation if you'd like to follow along in yours. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 8, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Well, the, the, the portion that we read divides really nicely into these two aspects. First, of the transcendent greatness and holiness of God, which is followed then by the imminent grace and goodness of God as He brings forgiveness to Isaiah. So let's take a look first at the elements of transcendence that we see in those opening verses, verses 1 to 5, the transcendent holiness of God. And aspects of, of His majesty and His glory and His holiness are seen in verses 1 to 4. The passage begins with a time marker in the year of King Uzziah's death, which is 740 B.C., 740 B.C., And if you know your biblical timeline history, you'll know that that is just before the northern kingdom is taken captive and destroyed by the Assyrians, which occurs in 722 B.C. So this this event took place just prior to that, and it's still a long time yet before the southern kingdom is taken captive by the Babylonians, which will take place in 586 B.C. So Isaiah is writing here and he has this vision at a time when the whole of the nation of Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms, are still intact, but both of them have have for the most part turned away from the Lord. And so you'll see in the book of Isaiah so many times his denunciations of the sin of the people of Israel, beginning right in chapter 1. But here here in chapter 6, he speaks of Uzziah in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now Uzziah was one of the kings of the southern kingdom who was a good king. On balance, he was one of the better kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. You may remember that all of the kings of the north were evil kings. Every one of them, it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in the south, the southern kingdom, the capital city, Jerusalem, there was a mix of good kings and bad kings. And Uzziah was one of the good kings. Uh, He trusted the Lord he was faithful to carrying out the law, and God honored him and brought to him tremendous military victories and the like. So, Uzziah was a good king until the end of his life. It's a reminder. I, I turned sixty this past year, and I just think, wow. I mean, that's a that's a marker that uh, is sobering. You know, I, at least it was for me uh, to, to turn sixty. You realize, boy, you, you don't have a lot of time left. <coughs> I could. Uh, collapse right here on the stage, huh? <laughs> you know, I'm coming off of three weeks of teaching straight, 8 a.m. to, uh, eight, 8 to 5.30 p.m. And uh, so anyway, it, it's just, uh, uh, it has been quite a bit. Um, yeah, so, so Uzziah did not end well. Here's what happened. You may remember that toward the end of his life, he went into the temple to burn incense, which was something that only the priests were to do. And the priests even warned him and said, no, don't do this. Now, what's behind that is in Israel, the line of the kings of Israel and the line of the priests were from two different tribes. Do you remember this? The line of the kings came through David back to which tribe? Judah, right? The son, one of the sons of Jacob. Judah was the line of the kings. You can look in Genesis 49 with the reference to Judah. The scepter will not depart from you, Judah. So the scepter of kingly rule is established in the tribe of Judah. But the line of the priests through Aaron went back to the tribe of Levi. Well, you can't be from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi together. Uh, Uzziah was not. He was from the tribe of Judah, uh, a descendant of David. And so he was properly a king, but he was not a priest and uh, and so he the the priest told him don't do this but he did it anyway he offered incense and God's judgment upon him at that moment was to strike him with leprosy so he lived the remaining years of his life separated from his own people as king of Israel as a leper it was just a, a just a uh, a shameful way to end what otherwise was a very faithful life okay here here is what i think uh Isaiah has in mind when he gives that first phrase, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I think it means more than merely the time marker, 740 B.C. I think Isaiah is thinking this, in a time when this good king has died and we don't know who's coming next. We don't know whether the next king of Judah will be a king who is faithful to the Lord and will support the righteous in the land or whether he will in fact be a wicked king like others have been. So maybe I could put it with this phrase, in a time of great uncertainty, when we don't know who the next president will be. We don't know, I'm thinking on our terms now, right? We don't know what's going to happen in Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria. North Korea. I mean, name the country practically, right? We, we don't know what's going to happen out there. In a time of great uncertainty, I saw the Lord. You see it? The point is, wow, there is stability, there is confidence and hope, because it doesn't matter ultimately who reigns on earth, because the one who reigns from heaven, whose glory is over all of the earth, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will always be on his throne. In a a time of great uncertainty, I saw the Lord. So, how is he described in verse 1? In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Now this is interesting because we're not told how this throne chair is elevated. We're just told that it is. I mean, maybe it was on some kind of a pedestal, on a platform. Maybe it was suspended in midair. I mean, we're just not told how this was. We are simply told that the throne chair, which must have been a massive chair, was up high, lifted high, and exalted upon which he sat, indicating, of course, his authority over all things, his kingly reign greater than any other king. He is king of kings, Lord of lords over all. I mean, we can see this in verse 3 where the seraph are crying out, the whole earth is full of his glory. What other king could say that? The whole earth is his dominion. The whole earth is his reign and rule. The whole earth is full of his glory, his stamp of rulership on all of it. That's this king. So we see this king lofty and exalted, indicating the supremacy of his kingly role over all. Then look also in verse 1. He's evidently wearing a kingly robe, and here's what we read. The train of the robe that he was wearing, the train of his robe wrapped around and filled the temple. That's how long the train of his robe was. That it wrapped around and around and filled the temple. Now that's an amazing image, isn't it? You, you wonder why in the world is that told us? In fact, why is it the case that his train would be that long? And here's my thought on this. I, I, I think we all have had, had experiences where we see a long train and it signifies something that is pretty obvious when we think about it. What comes to my mind is not the long train of a king's robe, but rather the long train of a wedding dress that I will never forget. And if you're as old as I am, some of you, you'll remember this as well. I remember one night we were living on the West Coast at the time and my wife asked me if if she wanted to wake me up at 3 a.m. to watch the wedding. And I said, no, thank you, dear. Uh, You you can watch it and tell me about it in the morning. Well, she was watching it and and enjoying it, but there came a certain moment that she could not bear watching it alone any longer. (laughs) So she went into the bedroom real quickly, aroused me me from my sleep, and and said, Bruce, you've got to come and look. So I came out into the living room, you know, blurry-eyed, rubbing my eyes, And I will never forget what I saw that moment. I looked at the television, and there I saw this beautiful bride, Lady Diana, walking down the center aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And the train of her wedding dress seemed to trail on endlessly behind her. Now, here's the question. Why such a long train for that wedding gown, for that bride... On that occasion, answer, royalty, splendor, majesty, beauty, authority. Do you see it? Well, here I think is the same image we have in Isaiah 6 verse 1. But here the train of this royal robe is so long it wraps around and around and around and fills the temple. There is no king that can match this king. His supremacy is greater than anyone. He is uncontested in his rulership over all things. This is the greatness of this king. Now, there's one more detail here that I want us to see. It is a gem. I didn't see this until just a few years ago. I I preached this passage many, many times and I was studying it afresh looking at it again And all of a sudden I went, oh my goodness, look at this. Well, here it is. Notice verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Well, if he's a throne, he's a what? Not he's a throne. If he's sitting on a throne, he's a what? He's a king. Well, what kind of building would you expect a king sitting on his throne to occupy? A palace, right? Look at how it ends. With a train of his robe filling the temple. Ah, so here we have a king on his throne who is in a temple where priests are. So you know what we have here? Is a prefigurement of one who will come as a king-priest. And the irony is thick because of Uzziah. I mean, Uzziah... Be, be, was struck with leprosy at the end of his life. This is what a serious deal this was. <coughs> In God's sight, that he, he would judge him for doing this. So here is this king who tried to be a priest and God says, no way, uh-uh. It's because there would only be one who would qualify. And that one who would qualify would be from the line of David, the, the tribe of Judah, but his priesthood would be established from a different place, right? Not from the tribe of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek, right? So here here is Jesus prefigured in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And this is confirmed in, in John chapter 12, verse 41. John quotes from Isaiah 6 and then says that Isaiah spoke of him and saw his glory, referring to Christ. So indeed, John 12, 41 confirms that this account is about Jesus. Not not Jesus, the incarnate one, because he hadn't been born yet, right? I mean, that hadn't happened yet. But the second person of the Trinity, the, the eternal son of the Father, who would become Jesus of Nazareth, is the one that Isaiah sees in this vision. So here is this picture of this glorious king, the one we now know is King Jesus, and he's over all of the earth in his reign. Verse 2, we see some other aspects of his transcendent fullness and beauty and splendor through the seraphim. Seraphim, we read in verse 2, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, these seraphim were great and glorious angelic beings. (coughs) They were powerful. They were uh, mighty and uh, beautiful. But most importantly, they were sinless. They were not, as we are, sinful beings. They were completely pure before the Lord. And even so, look at what's described. They have six wings, and with two of those wings, glorious, beautiful, radiant beings that they are, pure and spotless beings that they are, with two of those wings, they cover their eyes. They cannot look upon the splendor, the blinding brightness of the beauty of this king. They hide their eyes in his presence. Now, I just think so many times, again, the casualness, you know, our approach because of our rush to imminence, we don't realize how incredible it is that we can be in the presence of the Lord. We can only do that because of Jesus. We can only have access because of what he has done and that we are cleansed because of, of his saving work on the cross for us. We, we, don't, we just don't comprehend what an incredible thing it is to be in the presence of God. So here are these seraphs that remind us how amazing it is. They hide their eyes because of the brilliance of this one. With two of their wings they cover their feet. Now this is an interesting picture here. And you wonder what this is about. And my thought is this. That uh, it's clear that they're in, in an attitude of wor- worship. They're, they're worshiping the Lord. That's clear in the next verse. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. So obviously they are worshiping the Lord. So here's the question. How do you put yourself in a posture of worship that would be normative, as it were, uh, in, in uh, biblical worship? How do you put yourself in a posture of worship while you're flying? Because a posture of worship typically is to bow before. So how do you bow before while you're flying? Well, answer, you have two extra wings. And those two wings are put in a bowing posture. So they are put down over their feet to indicate the reverence they have, the awe that they have for this king, the, the, the sense of humility that they have before him. So both the, the, the brilliance of this king, they, they cover their eyes. The, the, uh, the, the worship and honor that they give to him in humility, they cover their feet. And then with two wings, they fly around and they cry out back and forth to one another in an everlasting, we know this from Revelation 7, an everlasting antiphonal response to one another. My, my own view is they were the first created beings to give praise to this king from the very first instance of creation and they never ceased to do so for all of eternity. Here are these seraphs who, who's as it were, privilege and responsibility. It is to be ever present worshipers of this king. And they cry out before him to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is the only time in the Old Testament where we have a double repetition of a term. Uh, Single repetitions are common because in the Hebrew language the way that you express a superlative like the greatest or the best or the most is with a single repetition. Uh, For example the greatest king is stated in Hebrew in the Hebrew language as king, king. Translated for us usually as king of kings, right? So the king of kings, king, king is greatest king. Lord, Lord, Lord of lords is the greatest Lord. Well, so superlatives are made with a single repetition. Here is a unique case in the Hebrew Bible where we have a double repetition. Holy, holy, holy. And I think that the idea behind this is that the holiness of God is so infinitely great. So beyond human comprehension that grammar and its confines simply is inadequate, simply are inadequate to express the greatness of the infinite holiness of God. Now what does holiness mean at its root? Most of you probably know this already. Holiness at its root, root idea is what? Separation, to be set apart. So God is holy in that He is set apart from all else. And we really should think of this in two ways because this is how the Bible speaks of His holiness in both of these ways. The first one you might think of as metaphysical holiness, metaphysical holiness. That is, God in His very being is separate from everything else. How so? Well, God in His being is eternal and everything else is temporal right? We come into being at a particular moment in time. But not God. He was and is and is to come. He is the everlasting God. He is eternal in His existence. He's the only one who is eternal in His existence. Everything else came into existence at a particular point. So He, he is, he is the, the, uh, the everlasting God, the eternal God. He is self-existent. Everything else is brought into existence. He is Creator. Everything else is created. He is infinite in His fullness. The word infinite is a negative term that means not finite, not bounded, not restricted. Everything else is finite, restricted, bounded, limited. So In in a number of ways, it is very, very clear that God is metaphysically separate from all else. He is one of a kind. There is no one like me, declares the Lord over and over in the Scriptures. But there's another sense in which we have to understand the separateness of God, not only metaphysically, but morally. That God is morally pure. He can have nothing to do with injustice or sin of any kind. his, His ways are always right. He always knows exactly what is right and carries it out. God's ways are perfect morally. Not just pragmatically, but perfect morally in everything that he does. So both metaphysical and moral separation mark who God is. Now let me take just a moment to show you a psalm where both of these are put together, one right after the other. Turn just back in your Bibles a tiny bit to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. In the opening five verses, you'll see both of these senses of holiness. First of all, verses 1 to 3. Look at what the psalmist says. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So holy is he is a reference back to what was just said of God, that He is above and beyond. He is separate from. He is transcendent in His holiness. He is metaphysically holy, separate from all else. Now, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist continues, "...the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob." Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. So here, the holiness that ends verse 5 is a reference back to the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the moral purity of God, that His ways are right in everything that God does. So both metaphysical, transcendent holiness and moral holiness, the holiness of His character and nature. Okay, back to, to Isaiah 6, verse uh, 3. So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They cry this out indicating the godness of God, the greatness of his transcendent perfection and his moral purity. And this one who is separate from all else is the one who governs everything on the earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. As creator... He is separate because He created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the earth exhibits His glory. Have you ever noticed in Psalm 19 that it does not say, the heavens declare the glory of the heavens? Right? Because the heavens had nothing to do with being the heavens. God made the heavens. So what you see in the heavens is the handprint of the Creator. Right, His wisdom, His beauty, His power manifest in the created order. So indeed the whole earth exhibits the glory of this one who made all things. Verse 4, we have, we have a couple more details here of the transcendence of God, the majesty and the greatness of God. Verse 4 we read, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So the first of the details in verse 4 is this, that as these seraphim are calling back and forth to one another in this constant antiphonal expression of praise, that the foundation stones of the temple building in which this worship is taking place are trembling. Now what does that signify? Well, goodness, foundation stones trembling. I have been to some loud concerts in my life and I, I pretty much regret having gone to those because I, I think my hearing uh, is is suffering today because of it, you know? But uh, I can remember being at concerts where I would stand against a wall, standing room only, like right over there, kind of a you know block, uh, concrete block walls. And I could feel the wall trembling a bit at that bass guitar, you know, and those instruments who were up on the stage. And uh, the windows would rattle, you know. But can you imagine sound so intense and at such a volume that not the walls or the windows, but the foundation stones trembling? Goodness gracious. This is worship that is just incredibly intense and, and deeply felt. These seraph are all about the worship of this God. They are uninhibited. They are expressing it with great magnitude of effort and, and, uh, uh, and energy in order for this to be occurring. I mean, what you, what you see here is a tiny little picture of what worship in heaven will be. Can you imagine what it will be when we are with the Lord and experiencing, thank you, experiencing the fullness of His glory now, sin removed. We see Him for who He is, and we don't care what anybody else thinks around us. We see Him, and we worship Him. Well, this is what we see in the seraphim. They, they, are, they are caught up uh, in the vision of who this great God is. Now also in verse 4, not only do we read that the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, but now while the temple was filling with smoke. The temple filling with smoke. What is this smoke? Where is it coming from? Well, if you look at commentaries on the book of Isaiah, they they will note rightly that God in his transcendence is oftentimes pictured in a setting that is clouded. I mean, you th- might think of Moses, for example, on the top of Mount Sinai, and the people watched Moses ascend, but then they couldn't see him because he went into this cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. And, uh, and it's true. I mean, there, there are a number of places where you see cloud associated with, uh, with the transcendence of God. But here it isn't cloud. It is smoke, not cloud. And here's another thing. There is something else in this temple that we haven't seen yet. That is not, not yet at verse 4. We haven't seen yet but we'll see it in just a couple verses that would give off smoke. What is it? Do you see it? There's an altar with burning coals. Well obviously burning coals would give off smoke. So here, here's what I think is going on. When you think of that altar with burning coals and what it's used for that we'll get to in just a minute here. What is it used for? A coal is taken from the altar to touch Isaiah's lips so that he is purified, cleansed, forgiven. So I think those coals and the smoke that they emit are then a symbolic of signifying the purity of God. That God cannot abide sin. And the comment the temple was filling with smoke indicating there is no way that God can have sinners in His midst, in His presence, with Him. They must be cleansed if they will be with Him. So, and it, isn't it interesting? This is the very last thing we're told at the end of verse 4, before, woe is me, I am ruined. The temple was filling with smoke. So I think this is what it signifies. The temple was filling with smoke signals, signifies... The the complete and unmarred, perfect purity of God. Stainless perfection. Sinless and and righteous in all of His ways. He cannot abide sin. Verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips... And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, notice three things with me in verse 5 real quickly. First of all, notice that Isaiah does not say, woe is me, I, I, I have a few problems. You know, I've got a few things, a few issues, you know, a few things to work on. And, but you know what? If I stop down at the, the local Barnes and Noble and get a good self-help book, I, I, I can fix this problem. Are you kidding? This is, this is a statement, I am ruined. I am destitute. I am helpless. I am hopeless. This is a statement of the complete and utter depravity and inability of this man to do anything about the condition of his own heart and soul. He is before God undone. And he cannot fix it. He cannot do anything to correct this problem that he now sees. So indeed, this is a very strong statement of the depravity of his own heart. I am ruined. I I am undone before God. I am a man of, of helpless, hopeless depravity. Notice secondly that what leads him to see this is seeing the Lord's holiness, right? So look at the end of verse 5. Woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Only when we understand who God is, when we see Him in His Holiness, His righteousness, His purity, His greatness, His splendor, His beauty. Can we then understand the condition of our own hearts? How desperately needy we are. How hopeless and helpless we are. We will never understand how great is our sin until we understand how great is His perfection. So they go in that order. We've got to see the greatness of God's stainless, perfect, sinless character in order to understand the depravity of our own hearts. And then notice third. There's a very fascinating thing that takes place when he says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now here's what's interesting about that. That, you know, this is Isaiah the prophet who would have reason to think when I consider the other people out there in Israel who have turned away from the Lord and and they are worshipping idols and they've rebelled against God but I, you know in in contrast to them am doing pretty well you know I'm a prophet of God and I'm serving Him and honoring Him with my life and so on balance I'm in pretty good shape it's those guys who are the sinners but when he sees the Lord all of a sudden you know the, the difference between him and them is about a eighth of an inch. And then the difference between them and God is millions of miles. Does that help you see the idea? So he sees how great is the gulf between the perfection of God and who he is and they are that has this leveling effect. We are all in the same boat. We are all in the same plight and condition. We are helpless and hopeless together. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Indeed, this is true for all of us. And uh, comparisons just pale (coughs) at the human level when we see who God is. Now, what I'm going to say next, I believe with all of my heart but it is a tough pill to swallow. And uh, I'll I'll just tell you what I think at this point and uh, ask you to consider it. See see if you would follow along in the same line of thought or not. I think this passage, ending at verse five right here, or at, at verse five, with woe is me, I am ruined. That this passage, the narrative of it, the story of it, could end right here. There is nothing that would require that verse 6 and following actually take place. In other words, God is holy. He's perfect. He is gloriously full and rich and and, uh, splendor filled. Isaiah, totally ruined, depraved, hopeless, helpless. End of story. What what, what would happen to Isaiah? Just judgment. Judgment. It's pretty clear. That's the only thing that could follow. But my friends, it is amazing that there's a verse 6 and 7 and 8. It is astonishing. I mean, grace really is amazing. It is not something that we should expect. The fact that God comes to this man, to Isaiah, is just astonishing. I mean, it's a... Ephesians 2, 4 moment, right? We were children of wrath even as the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Indeed, it's in Ephesians 2, 4 moment. So verses 6 and 7, look with me again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Notice the initiator of this mercy, of this grace and kindness is God. Isaiah didn't call out for it. I mean, Isaiah is undone. He's on the ground. He's realizing he is unworthy altogether of this God. But God comes to him. God takes the initiative to seek him out and sends the seraphim to bring this ministry of grace to him. And the means of grace as the coal comes and touches him is a a ministry of forgiveness, of purification. Look again at verse 7. He took that coal from the altar and touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is canceled, is forgiven. Oh, my, what a glorious thing. My sin, oh, the... Hold on, I'm forgetting it. (laughs) Bliss, thank you, thank you. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part... But the whole has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So indeed, this is what Isaiah experienced, this fullness of his sin forgiven as the as the seraph comes and administers this coal to bring purification and forgiveness. But notice one other thing here. It's just it is a precious little detail. He touched his lips with it. What had Isaiah said earlier? I am a man of unclean lips I mean we don 't know why he said that i, I you know i I've, i just don't know honestly i, I don 't know why he said. What, that instead of, I'm a man of un, uh, unclean hands or unclean feet, or, I mean, goodness, pick, pick your body part, right? I mean, just, we're, we're unclean all the way. So, wh- why he picked lips is hard to say. Perhaps it was, I mean, just a guess, perhaps it was he knew the principle out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, he knew his lips indicated the depravity of his own heart as he said things that were not right, and so on. But for whatever reason, that's what he said. I am a man of unclean lips. So what does the seraphim do? He touches his lips with it, indicating God has forgiveness that matches his sin. It's personal. It's, it is, it, it is you know, like a doctor's prescription for your ailment. This medication does cure this disease. I mean, it's just just a glorious thing to realize this is how God works. He has forgiveness tailor-made for your sin. So don't think of sin as just kind of a general category out there. It's your specific sins that are forgiven, my specific sins that are forgiven, and specific forgiveness for specific sins. Isn't it amazing? So indeed, he touches his lips, and he is forgiven. And what this brings about then is not only the purification of his heart, but, oh my goodness, it just gets better. It gets even more amazing. Not just forgiveness, but restoration to service. So verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. I mean, here's how I think of this. You might think of a setting where you forgive somebody, some horrible thing, and and it it takes a lot to forgive them. But you forgive them and then you say to them, you're forgiven, I I won't bring this up again, but just stay out of my sight and don't do it again, you know, something like that, you know. You know, just don't be a bother to me again the way you were before. But this is not God. He is just the opposite of this. Despite the horror of our sin, the the extent of His forgiveness that had to be given for us to be restored into relationship with Him, then He calls us into His service. And if you think that's not a good thing, huh, you are not thinking correctly. Because here's why. Because God is, in calling us into service, as he does to Isaiah here, he is calling us to enter into life's most fulfilling, most rewarding, most joy-producing labor that there is to exert in all of life. It is the greatest privilege that God gives to us, not just to be his people, but to be his servants and to serve the Lord and to, to minister in, in in doing in carrying out his work, which I just find astonishing that he would do this. Because I, I'm just not you know, I think of myself, I do not like people you know as it were, tinkering with my work. Because I'm a perfectionist. I just, I, I, I am, which is a problem, by the way. It's not a good thing. It's, it's more often a problem than not. But I'm a perfectionist, which means I don't like people getting into my work. I want to do it myself because my way is the right way, period. I just, that's, that, that's the way my, my psyche is. I can remember at times when I was uh, working on a, a woodworking project down in the basement when our children were little, and the worst sound in the world at 10 o'clock at night, was the sound of the pitter-patter of little feet coming down the stairs. And I knew these words were about to be uttered. Daddy, can I help you? No! <laughs> you know, I said, no! Stay away! Uh, don't, you know, so I'd have to come up with something for them to do They'd be off in the corner and they wouldn't bother me in my work I mean I just think how selfish I am of my work God says now, here's a question does God care about his work oh my is he a perfectionist oh my but guess what he does he says I not only forgive you I equip you call you invite you Command you to be involved in the most significant work there is to do. When you think of ministry, service, the first word that ought to come to your mind is the word privilege. Privilege. Long before sacrifice, difficulty, stress, tension, the word privilege needs to top the list. It is an incredible thing that God calls Isaiah into service. And what is it that enables him to render such willing service? Why is he so ready to go? Because he knows the Lord. He has seen God in the greatness of his splendor, realizing how unworthy he is before him, and through that has understood the magnitude of the grace that has been shown to him. And his response is, I can do nothing other than serve you who has given so much for me. And by the way, this is not payback. Don't ever think of it this way. That, you know, God, God has done a big thing for us, so now it's our turn to do something good for him. No, this is just an expression of the, the duty that we feel and the delight we feel. Those two go together, don't they? The duty we feel and the delight we feel in serving the one who has been so incredibly gracious and kind. And then to persevere in difficult service only comes when you know the Lord. You know his strength, his enablement to sustain you. The calling upon Isaiah was one of the most difficult anybody could be given. And basically what God told Isaiah, you can read the rest of the chapter to see this. I want you to preach to a people who will despise what you say. I will ensure that they will hate your words. They, they will turn away from them. They, they will mock you and ridicule you and, and yet be faithful in saying exactly what I want you to say. No, nice sermon pastor... You know, no, no no, pats on the back, it slaps in the face. So what, what, what can enable a person to endure such hostility in being faithful? They know the Lord. They know how great is His greatness and great is His grace. And those two things go together. And so they, they want nothing other than to serve Him no matter what the cost because of how great God is. Now by the way, the reason Isaiah was told to render that service, preach to a people who would despise it, was because this was part of God's strategy of confirming, as it were, the justice of the judgment that he was about to bring upon those, northern, those people of the northern kingdom. They, they were already guilty. They were already deserving of the judgment that was coming in just a few years. But this would only confirm it as they rejected again and again and again and again the preaching of Isaiah. It confirmed their heart of rebellion against the Lord. So preach with faithfulness that it might testify of their hardness of heart and the justice of my judgment. This is what God had in mind. So Isaiah rendered this with such amazing faithfulness in the, in the face of great difficulty. Well, my friends, here is a great picture of what it means to know the Lord, to know Him as the transcendent, exalted, high and lifted up, mighty warrior king, the one who is above all, the, His glory fills the earth. His perfection is so great, the seraph cannot look upon Him. And yet, that same God came to this sinner, this helpless, ruined sinner, and showed him astonishing, magnificent grace, purified him, forgave him, and called him into service. So my question to you as we think about this, how well do you know God? Are you guilty? Be honest with yourself now. Not with me, with yourself. Are you guilty of a rush Imminence. and in so doing, rushing to the love of God. Oh, we want to get there, absolutely. But rushing to the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Have you bypassed the transcendence of God that shows how amazing is His love and mercy and grace? Well, let's know the Lord in greater measure that we might honor Him who is worthy of honor and long with all of our hearts to render faithful service for His glory and for the good of us, His people. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for our time this evening as we have had the opportunity to just reflect a bit on this amazing portion of Scripture. What an amazing God You are. And we we are just overwhelmed, Father, with your transcendent fullness and your imminent kindness and mercy. Help us, Lord, to grow in the true knowledge of who you are and be changed because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Does it feel a little bit like Alaska in here? I'm Canadian and I don't got my toque nor my big coat and it's, I got frostbite on my ear right now. What's wrong with you people down here in the south? Turn the heat on.
1: Oh.
2: To worship you. The transcendent one. The one that is high and lifted up. That is. Reigning over all. Thank you for this opportunity tonight. To not just rush past. Your transcendence. And pointed to your greatness and how unlike us, how set apart, how other you are. Particular is your care. How much you are here right now to minister, to convict.